Hello, dear listeners. Sorry for interrupting the episode, but I have some housekeeping items to let you know about. We are currently accepting submissions for Halloween-themed stories. Head on over to nightsendpodcast.com for all the details. It's only going to be six acceptances, so you should get in quick. I also wanted to give a big shout-out to all the phenomenal narrators and voice actors that have courteously volunteered their skills to help bring these very talented authors' stories alive. I can't thank you all enough, and you make the process of releasing a weekly podcast a lot easier for me. And lastly, today we have a special guest narrator on the night's end, Drew Sabastini, the host and producer of the Tales to Terrify podcast. This show is one of the original horror podcasts and is one of the podcasts that convinced me to start The Night's End. So thank you, Drew, and the whole team over at Tales to Terrify. This podcast would not exist without you. If you have never heard of them, you should definitely remedy that immediately. But listen to this episode first. (laughs) Search Tales to Terrify wherever you get your podcasts or go to talestoterrify.com. Without further ado, enjoy the episode. Hello, can you hear me? Make sure you take the right door on your way down. There's no telling where you'll end up. Well, friend, we've witnessed some interesting stories since we arrived. I'm starting to believe there is no end to them here. I miss you, little one. You will never forget. Hang on. That sounds like Alan. No, Jimmy. Sorry. I'm a bit disheveled at the moment and in no mood for company. Understood. We'll move along. No. Hang on. Come and have a seat. If you are to defeat Malik, you need to know everything. Anything you need, Alan. Thank you, Jimmy. Bell and I had a baby while Malik had us imprisoned and before the food stopped coming. A little boy. My little Edgar. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's still so raw, even though it happened a century ago. Ghosts, you see, don't have any concept of time. Pain stays as real as day one. There seems to be a lot of tormented people within these walls. Indeed. Well, our boy got sick so quickly. I begged Malik to provide some help, but he just 
laughed at us and told us he was to be a sacrifice for the house. I couldn't believe what he was saying. There really are no boundaries for him, are there? My sweet boy. It took three days to die. I think Malik was putting poison in Bell's food that was transferring to him through the milk. I'm so sorry to hear it, Helen. We will avenge him. You don't have to worry about that. He will not get away with this. <laughs> oh, he took away his body. I don't even know where he buried him. <sighs> Let's take him out, Jimmy. He is definitely on borrowed time. Don't worry. You'll have your chance to take him out. Let the others know that we need to set up a meeting. We have some information to share. It will help to know exactly who is on our side as well. I will. Be well, Jimmy and friend. Be well, Alan. Come, friend. Let us witness. There's a crib over here. Fane Nursery Written by Marcus Vance Narrated by Drew Sebastini was so happy as my wife's screams sent my ears ringing, pleasure mixed with pain when she dug her nails deep into my palm and wrists. She scratched and clawed, and I could see the bloody little girl's head crowning, could hear her murmured gurgling. I cried when I saw my daughter enter this world, tears of joy and love. The three of us stayed in the hospital that night after we had been up for over 34 hours of labor. Even following the constant screams that accompanied my wife's contractions, I couldn't sleep. Sleep had never been a close friend of mine, but the gamut of nurses and technicians coming and going made my usual insomnia look tame. They came in legion to take and test the baby. Her blood, her skin color, her height and weight, it never ended. When they'd bring her back, the nurses would scan my wife's plastic bracelet and scan a similar one on the baby's ankle, making sure they matched, making sure we didn't get the wrong child. Once we were cleared, we went home with a happy, healthy baby. Our home routine was drastically changed with the new addition, but as the nights of the first week passed, we fell into the groove of it. An agony of endless diapers, 
feedings, complainings, and fitful naps were alleviated by the silver lining that was our daughter. Each night before we put her in the crib, my wife and I would gaze deeply into the girl's face. Who do you think she looks like? She'd ask with baby held in her arms, the small head propped up next to hers. She has your ears, I'd say, examining closely. Then she'd hand the swaddled bundle to me. I'd raise the baby's head next to mine and make the same scrunched-up, pursed-lipped face that she was making. She has your Roman nose, my wife would giggle. Sometimes, we'd even pull up a family album, comparing the baby to childhood pictures of us. We would watch her nap and see in her sleeping face glimpses of ourselves, our parents, my brother, her brother. We were both so entranced by looking at her in different lights, different angles, our eyes prying hard past the baby fat and baby roundness to glean who she might become, trying to guess what she'd be in the years to come. After a few weeks, I had caught up with my sleep deprivation and slipped into my normal insomniac pattern that I had had ever since I was young. Where before I would stalk the dark moon shadows of my house at night, now my new hobby was to lean against the door and look into my daughter's moon-bathed nursery. Her crib was the showpiece in the middle of the room. Sometimes I'd be bold and enter, and look down at a tiny, swaddled version of myself, my wife, our parents and siblings, as the open window caused goosebumps to erupt on my bare chest. The midnight rays illuminated new features on her little face. Perhaps my insomnia got even worse after having her, though, because I had so much more to worry about. I found myself growing more paranoid than I was before, at every sound of the house settling, at every muted cry my daughter made, at every ruffling of the sheets as my wife turned over. I investigated each nightly trespass more swiftly, and always carried my compact 45 handgun, a gift from my father, hidden in my waistband. A menacing wind the sly night animals. I defended against them all. My wife thought this was going too far. You're worrying too much. You don't need to skulk around at night. We're perfectly safe, darling, okay? We always have been. There is nothing out there tonight, just like every night. Please just come back to bed. Please? She'd plead. However, I could not. After endless hours trying to sleep, I'd grow distracted. I'd feel a calling, like a hypochondriac is called to cleaning. My father had instilled the call to vigilance into every fiber of my being since I could turn my head. I couldn't stray from it now. 
3 a.m., the witching hour. My eyes were wide open with dark bags underneath them. This sleepless night was cold, the sun's heat from the previous day forgotten, the quiet time when no sane creature stirred. It was then that I first heard the sounds, a light creeping and scurrying that came from no raccoon, no nocturnal cat, not weather, not the house settling, something that was at home in the Stygian dawn, something out there that I could just barely hear taking on a mask of stealth. But my actions were stealthier still. I'd trained for this all my life. My sleepless childhood nights roaming my old two-story house, adeptly avoiding the creaking and groaning floorboard. My last several years coursing and casing my current house without disturbing my wife. I slid out from the covers, leaving my wife undisturbed. I pulled out the pistol from my nightstand. The cool metal of the checkered frame called to me. The pitted wood grip was an extension of my palm. A 230-grain hollow point was at home in the chamber. With old friend in hand, I rose and stepped lightly out of my bedroom. My eyes were well adapted to the dark. With practiced grace, I gingerly walked forward by placing the outside of my foot down first, then the ball of my feet, then the heel. No sound came from my footfalls. I was a large hunting cat, noiselessly stalking unwary prey, prey that still scampered about as I could hear. I reached the nursery door and peered inside with gun ready but pointed at the ground, low ready position as my father had trained me. My child was swaddled as she should be, and the window was cracked open slightly to bring in a cooling summer's breeze. I spent the next hour clearing my house with caution, chameleon-like footfalls. My father had taught me that slow is smooth and smooth is fast, and I had always grudgingly followed his wisdom. I widened my search perimeter in order to find the furtive being, be it cat or raccoon or something else that stalked my property. I spent an entire still dawn in our backyard, waiting and combing through every inch of the yard in the dim glow of streetlights. Many would have said that such a search was fruitless, or that I was imagining the sounds, but they'd be wrong. After a methodical sweep, I had found it. My proof that they said I wouldn't find. Amidst a bush with broken limbs. Sign. Droppings. Scat. The creature had tried to hide it, but nothing escaped my eyes. I smirked in my triumph, for now I had undeniable, physical proof of the presence. 
I collected the detritus in a small plastic baggie to dissect later in better lighting. Until then, I merely searched, but now with a point of focus. I crouched a few dozen feet away from the bushes and waited. I was patient, with my pistol dangling in my grasp and my eyes glued to that spot. Two hours passed, and the sun peeked over the horizon. The morning sky began to burn. They must have been onto me, because I saw nothing after that, nor heard sounds during my crouching. They were as still as I was. My wife was also onto me. She had gotten up to go to the bathroom and found both her husband and his pistol missing from the bedroom. She found me in the yard. What the hell are you doing? She asked. Is that thing loaded? Before I had a chance to defend myself, she pulled me and pushed me back inside the house. You can't be doing shit like this anymore. You know the neighbors have already complained, and now you're doing it with a gun? What's the matter with you? I told her and grabbed her hand. I pulled her back into the yard and around to the side of the house. I pointed an accusing finger toward the definitive proof, the broken bush branches, and drew the plastic baggie from my pocket. See? What is that? Is that shit? Anything could have left that. A cat, raccoon, rat, whatever. It doesn't matter. But the scurrying, I started, could be anything. I'm just trying to protect. I don't want you coming out here again. In fact, I don't want you leaving the bed at night again. Your butt stays in bed, even if you can't sleep. Why can't you do what normal people do and read a book or something? That was the end of it. The next night, I tried to stay in bed. I read, but hardly made a dent in the book. The words wouldn't focus for me, because I was listening instead. The first half of the night was silent. They must have been cautious. I had read three more pages by the witching hour, and that's when they grew bold. Before, I had hindered them, so they feared me. Feared my stealth, feared my protective instincts, feared what I'd do when I found them. But with me confined to the bed, they began to mock me. I could hear them, louder than before. Once timid, now daring. A skittering on the roof. Oh, how loudly they danced up there. I'm sure it would have driven anyone mad. But I waited. I remained in bed, though each noise urged me to leave. I couldn't, though, knowing how upset my wife would be if she found me missing. My back grew clammy with sweat as I sat up, book propped in my lap. The skittering sounds of footsteps persisted and grew louder and louder still. They knew 
They knew that I was trapped and played about as they never had played before. Sweat was growing on my brow. I couldn't stay here anymore, but, but I had to. My wife, but the noise, those monsters cavorting unchecked, they could be doing anything. They were in the house, I could hear, so close, and I was trapped here. Abruptly, they stopped. That was more unbearable than their mocking on the roof. What were they doing in my home? I had heard them in the kitchen, clanking pots and pans, and then in the living room amidst the electronics. The last sounds were in this hallway, near the nursery. The nursery is where they stopped. I couldn't bear it anymore, not with the thought of them looking in on my child. I sprang out of bed with only the slightest guise of stealth to leave my wife undisturbed. Then I dashed out the door, pistol forgotten. When I arrived at the nursery door, I hastily scanned the room. All appeared safe and sound from the doorway. I relaxed for only a moment, then heard a rustling underneath the window outside. Those bushes where I had found the sign, they were right under this window. I crossed the room as quickly and as silently as a hunting cat. In the darkness, there was a flurry of fading movement into those bushes. The branches swayed for a moment, and then were still. I was transfixed on the spot, waiting for more movement, waiting to see what animal had been tormenting me. A half hour must have passed as the half-glimpsed beast taunted me in hiding. Then I heard sounds unlike the scurrying. They didn't come from the bushes in front of me, but from behind me. My wife wore a mouth guard to prevent her from grinding her teeth, and this sounded much like when she'd forgot to put it in. The grinding of teeth on teeth, bone on bone. But the noise wasn't coming from my wife far off in the other room. It was a tiny crunching sound arising from the moonlit crib. My face scrunched in confusion. I crept slowly towards the crib. My footfalls were again silent on the carpet, muffled by the slow and steady grinding. I peered over the railing, and my cautious curiosity quickly morphed into mute horror. As the grinding continued, I saw a face that was not my little girl's. Not a baby's supple pink, but a round head that was piggish and green. My face contorted in shock as I saw this goblin thing's skull shrinking, its contracting bones scraping under the skin, pointed ears slowly rounding until they resembled my wife's. Squat eyes scrunched in concentration as the scaly skin changed from reptile green to chubby baby pink, 
primal Cro-Magnon brow popped and ground inward to form a soft, round head. Finally, only the upturned pig nose remained on my daughter's otherwise normal face. It rasped and grated as cartilage turned down and extended into a miniature Roman nose. With that final feature striking deep into my brain, the same nose as mine, my god, I gasped. Her eyes sprang open. A flare of feral yellow quickly dulled to the muddy brown my wife and I shared. The snarl on the baby beast's lips quickly melted. She cooed and gurgled, threw her arms up in a stretch above her head, and fell asleep. I backed away from it slowly. A cuckoo bird's cry pierced the night through the open nursery window. You've been listening to the Night's End Podcast, which is a production of Dissonance Media. Fae Nursery was written by Marcus Vance, who is the author of When Nothing Stares Back and Across the Vacuum, a sci-fi haiku collection. Links to purchase these from Amazon in the show notes. You can also follow Marcus on Twitter at Marcus C. Vance. This episode was narrated by Drew Sebastini. Drew works best by the light of the moon, spinning dark and delirious tales of horror each and every week as the hosts of Tales to Terrify podcast, one of the longest-running horror fiction podcasts. During those loathsome daylight hours, though, he applies his creative forces as a writer, designer, and creative director for his little ad agency, Balloonfish. He lives in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada, with his partner, son, and a slowly dwindling menagerie of aged fur kids. Listen to more of his work at TalesToTerrify.com or get in touch via social media at Dr. Nebulon. Alan Mortain was performed by David Martinez. Jimmy Horace was performed by James Barnett. This episode was edited and produced by James Barnett. Just in case you didn't know, the team at the Night's End podcast have a horror-themed apparel line out now. Go and check it out at stayhorrific.com. And as always, stay horrific, everyone.